Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Owning our story can be hard, but not nearly as difficult as spending our lives running from it. Embracing our vulnerabilities is risky, but not nearly as dangerous as giving up on love and belonging and joy, the experiences that make us the most vulnerable. Only when we are brave enough to explore the darkness will we discover the infinite power of our light. Brene Brown So I will admit that I don't know too much about Brene Brown other than that some amazing women in my life have told me I need to check her out. So I'm assuming she must be pretty good. (laughs) And I wanted to read that quote about vulnerability in honor of the people who come onto this podcast and tell their stories because it's not always easy. Looking back on the difficult moments in our lives when we were terrified and full of grief and fear and didn't know what the future may bring can be very terrifying. But every person who has come on to this podcast and told their story has also spoken of hope and encouragement, and this one is no different. I first met Tara about a year ago. We occasionally meet for lunch and talk about our lives as moms to kids with special needs, the struggles, the logistics, the grief, the positive intentions for now and the future. And I've said it before, and I will say it again, There is healing in telling our stories. So when Tara finally sent me the text that said, I'm ready to record my story, I was excited and I was happy and full of joy for her to be in a place where she felt confident and comfortable to tell her story. And I was honored that she was willing to share it with me and this podcast. There are many details to her and her family story that I didn't know before this, so it was, really, it was really great to sit with her and be able to, to really hear her story and be with her as she told it. Rowan has Pura syndrome. While he was born at home, it was only hours later that he was under the fluorescent lights of a hospital exam table, and that was just the beginning of his medical journey. Tara spoke about her trauma and depression and how, with the help of ABM therapy, not only for the therapeutic benefits it provided her son, but also for its introduction to a new and supportive community, she was able to find her way in the world again. She talks about what is important to her family and how they have found the road to happiness and acceptance. If you would like to learn more about Pura Syndrome, please visit purasyndrome.org. That's P-U-R-A. S-Y-N-D-R-O-M-E dot org, or you can follow the link in the show notes. And as always, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. 
subscribe so you don't miss an episode. It's free. And you can help the podcast be seen by more people with every, uh, when you subscribe or leave a review or rating, that all gets us up there in the charts. I actually got an email the other day that said that this podcast was ranked in the personal journals podcast and there must be like a cutoff. I've never gotten an email before. So there must be like some cutoff that, um, or some, you know, if you get to a certain point, then you get an email. And so currently on Apple podcast, this is in the person under the personal journals section. This podcast is number, was it like 1,450 <laughs> was the ranking? Yes. Also, it's like number uh, 300-something in the Czech Republic, which is rad. And, um, yeah, like number 600 in India and Turkey in personal journals uh, category. Anyway, so that was very exciting and also makes me laugh. Um, And, of course, also share with a friend, any friend. doesn't have to be a parent of special needs because we are going full on inclusion now. Like I'm starting, I'm learning more about it. I mean, I've always been a fan of it, but now I really understand, starting to understand the workings behind it or what that looks like. And so, you know, I used to say that this podcast was for parents and caregivers of special needs. And it is, it's a place where we get to talk and tell our story, but by all means, Share this with your friends. Get, let everybody have a little insight into this world and because uh, we can all benefit from being here. So um, in two days, I will be interviewing the ladies from the Inclusive Education Project podcast. I'm so excited. Uh, that is an amazing podcast full of information on special education and disability rights, what inclusion looks like, and so much more. That's where I'm, I'm learning so much about inclusion and how to approach it, what it looks like. And uh, if you have a question that you would like answered by them, one that would benefit a large group of people, not just like something specific about your own child's IEP, but uh, if you have a question for them, uh, they are civil rights attorneys. They're based out of California. But they're very knowledgeable and very passionate about what they do. So uh, you can email me at walkingwithfreya at, at gmail.com. Email me by, I'm going to say Thursday night, Pacific time, whatever that is. And yeah, I'll try and get that on there. So I am grateful to all of you for being here. And I am very grateful to Tara for her honesty, her openness, and her courage in sharing with this podcast. Here is her story. Hello. Hi, Tara. Hi. Thanks for being here. Yeah, happy um, to be here. Good. Yeah, we're going to talk about your son, Rowan. Mm-hmm. And do you want to just um, tell us, uh, like, who, your family, just kind of give us, like, so we, people can... You know, it's kind of good to know um, just siblings and, you know, the diagnosis um, mm-hmm. to start with that. Okay. Yeah, I have three kids. Um, my husband and I, his name's Chris, and um, our oldest is Lila. She's 10. And then we have Zaid, who is eight, almost nine. 
And Rowan is our youngest. He is five. He just turned five in August. And his diagnosis is called Pura syndrome. P-U-R-A. It's mm-hmm. a chromosomal disorder that affects the fifth chromosome. Okay. How common is it? Do you know? It's not very common. Uh, though I suspect that that's more of a matter of diagnosis. Um, so far, I think there's there's just over a hundred people in the world that are diagnosed with it. Um, wow. But I think that as genetic testing becomes more accessible, I suspect that we'll realize there's a lot more people than that. They just maybe don't have access to the testing. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the characteristics of it? Like the, not so much pertaining to your son, but do you know? Like In general? Is, yeah. Yeah. Um, severe hypotonia. Mm-hmm. Is, um, that's the main thing. Um... Mm, epilepsy. Most of the kids are nonverbal. Um, real fatigue. That I think energy is a is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I haven't gone on the website in a really long time. I I think they've probably updated it since I've gone on there, and and there are some research <clears throat> ventures that are happening now. So I think that. The, the Pura organization is, is coming together and they're like listing out things like that on the website more uh-huh. formally. It used to be much more loose. So um, those are the things that I think of. But, mm-hmm. uh, I What's that? Like... Do you mind telling me the website? I mean, so people can look it up if they um, want. You know, or you can I, send I, it to I, me later. I think it's just purasyndrome.org or something. Okay. Like that. Um, you could Google it or I could send it to you. Okay. Yeah, I haven't, you know, I haven't really gone on there much since he was diagnosed. I kind of looked at it, and then I was like, okay, that was good. <laughs> was it just, like, too much? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I I just really want to be in this place of, like, Rowan is his own person, and, you know, these are things that affect a lot of people with Pure Syndrome, but I don't know if this is necessarily going to be Rowan's situation. Right. So I've been trying to keep that open. Good. Mm-hmm. I think that's a healthy way to be, to have, you know, some knowledge, but also be open-minded about and willing for uh, for them to, to break the mold or to, you know, not yeah. fit all the characteristics. Yeah, I know. I, I, I think of one time that I went on there after that first time, before Rowan started having seizures, um, you know, I was, of course, hoping that he wouldn't ever start having seizures. And I went back on the website and I saw that they listed epilepsy as, like, a main characteristic. And I was like, damn it. Like, I don't want to see that, you know? Right. But he did eventually start having seizures. So I don't know if there are any of the kids who don't have epilepsy. There's really not much known about it so far. Well, I imagine with only like a hundred people, yeah, officially diagnosed. Yeah, and it it wasn't declared a syndrome until he was already a year and a half old. So when he was born, it wasn't even a syndrome. Wow. So really, there's you know they're just starting to get organized to do research about it. Okay. Mm. Well, so do you mind if we go back and? talk about the beginning a little bit, how we got diagnosed, maybe when you started noticing things Mm -hmm. or... Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, Rowan was, we were planning a home birth um, here on the coast. We didn't want to be in Orleans because it, just in case something went wrong, we wanted to be close to the hospital. So we were planning home birth at our friend's house, and he was about 10 days overdue, and um, we thought that we would have had him by then, so we like ran out of places to stay on the coast and we were scrambling to find another place and some other friends opened up their house and uh he just you know nothing was happening labor was not kicking in so they started having us do non-stress tests they talked about you know we might have to do a a c-section because my first child was uh, born through a cesarean um and then my second was a v-back at mad river but then, since then, they had made a rule that they wouldn't do VBACs during that period. I don't know if it's still the same. So I was in this weird position where I'd had a successful VBAC, but then uh, they wouldn't let me do it again mm-hmm. unless I was at home. So even my doctor at Mad River was like, don't come in because they'll do a C-section on you just automatically. Mm-hmm. So I really didn't want to go in, but I was getting overdue more and more. And um, finally... One of my midwives actually had to leave town because she didn't think that we would go that long and she'd planned to officiate at a wedding. Mm-hmm. So she left and then I was down to just one and she was kind of like taking a risk. Nobody else would join her uh, because mm. it was considered a high risk and usually you have more than one midwife, but she decided that she would do it. So... um Eventually, she broke my water, um, and then we thought for sure when I wake up in the morning or during the night, I'll go into labor, but in the morning, nothing still, and so I was, like, super bummed because I'm like, what are we going to do? So then that day, I just went on, like, a huge hike for five miles. I drank some super spicy chili juice. I took all the herbs. Finally, the labor kicked in, and... Um, you know, the birth was really intense. I, I had already had, you know, one vaginal birth, but um, this was much more intense. And I remember thinking, I think a lot of women think this, like, I'm not sure if this is going to work. Is anything happening? (laughs) I kept saying that to Claire. I kept saying, I don't think it's working. (laughs) Like nothing's happening. And, uh, you know, when he was born, he was like 10 pounds and one ounce so he was big and and in hindsight (laughs) I realized that I think because of the hypotonia he really wasn't moving at all like a baby would normally sort of help in the process Mm -hmm. you know so he was he was like just kind of limp Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that's why it felt like that right in hindsight I think it really did feel like it wasn't working (laughs) Um, but so he was born at home and my other kids were there and another friend and it, you know, it was a really hard labor, but not complicated. Nothing out of the ordinary happened. It was sweet because my other kids were able to be there. Mm-hmm. My son, my middle son's eight. I remember he like fell asleep leaning on my knee as I was pushing and he was wearing this like <laughs> this, um, uh, like a belly dance costume of his sister's. <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I'll never forget that. 
<laughs> no, it was just, it was a sweet home birth, and they were such a part of it, and then we had this nice, like, four hours afterward where we were all together, and it didn't, you know, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that anything was wrong, and in hindsight, I'm so glad I had that grounding time, because if he had been born in the hospital, mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have even been able to hold him, because I think the doctors would have been like, whoa, let's check him out, let's get, you know whisk him away or whatever so I mean when he was born back up to that moment when he first came out he was very purple he was like dark purple um and he was very floppy and I think probably Claire was like oh this is weird but you know as a mom just giving birth I didn't really I was just like phew yeah I did it I'm so (laughs) glad I remember just being like, oh, you know, it was nice, and I was able to hold him, and he he actually tried to latch on. Hmm. He did move a little bit, but he didn't cry, and that was the big red flag, I think, for Claire, and she was waiting to see what would happen, and after a couple hours, she was like, you know, it's unusual that he hasn't cried, and you might want to consider taking him in to make sure he cleared his lungs, and I was totally in this high state of bliss where I was just like oh yeah sure I'll take him in that'll be great no problem like and I remember Mm. Chris being like my husband being like I don't know if we should do that because they're gonna screw it up you know the doctors are gonna mess with him and that's gonna be a bummer like we should just enjoy this time and my my first child my daughter Lila um she was two months early and we had been through a huge NICU experience already. And we really felt like that was traumatic. Um, though we yeah. hadn't seen anything yet really compared to Rowan. But, um, so we had had a lot of experience of stress and anxiety. Right. And read doctors. And he, and... and Chris was definitely like, Oh, let's stay away from there unless we really have to go. And Claire was very much like, it's up to you. I would go if I was you, but you know, I'm not going to make you do it. And, And so I was just like, oh, yeah, let's go, you know. Um, So we went, Claire drove me and Rowan, and Chris stayed home with the other two kids who were in bed by then. And we got to the hospital, and there was a brand-new doctor there, and he, I remember just feeling like, oh, this guy's so nervous. Like, Mm. why do I have to deal with him? Like, I, I, my state of mind was very positive. Like, I felt like we're going to be out of here in an hour. This is going to be formality. And, um, this doctor is just kind of young and inexperienced and, and overly anxious and he needs to calm down. You know, that was kind of my feeling. Um, so they put him on this table for newborns and it had this bank of fluorescent lights. Like it seemed to me, it was like two feet, over his head like basically there was a bank of fluorescent lights shining right on him which you know that's when I started to get stressed out I was Mm -hmm. like what the hell like no don't put him on there he's he was just born and he visibly became stressed and started doing these kind of jerking motions Mm -hmm. and uh, the doctor was like he's having a seizure and I was like no, he's not. You're to- you're a, you're a bad doctor. Clearly, like I was kind of like, get this guy out of here. Give me my baby. And then they were like, no, sorry, you can't hold him. 
And then I started getting, you know, upset. Oh, I, I was like, oh my God, I should have listened to Chris. This is a total mistake. Why did we come here? And then, you know, Claire is trying to calm me down. She was great. She was, you know, she was advocating for me for sure. She was like, can she hold her baby? Why does he have to be on there? And, and then it was just like this whole team of people rushed in and um, they were on the phone with UCSF and pretty much, you know, if they think it's a seizure, they're not going to take any chances. So they were like phenobarbital, uh, you know, that's what UCSF told them to do. So that's what they did. They gave them that, which I had no idea what that was, but now I realize, you know, it's a super strong medication. And, uh, it didn't really work. I mean, I, that, I, that part's a little hazy for me. I mm-hmm. just remember being like really upset that they wouldn't let me hold him. They, they continue to keep him on this table with these lights and they're, now they're giving him this medication. And I was just kind of like, how did this get so out of control so fast? Right. I felt really, um, like disempowered. I was like, this is my baby. Why do you get to say what? what you're going to do with him. I was really upset. And, uh, then, you know, the airplane, was it airplane? No, they, we had to take like a taxi to the airport. So the taxi thing showed up and they were like, Oh, you can't go. Uh, we're just going to take the baby. We're going to fly him to UCSF. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I have to go. Like, you can't just take him. And then I remember the, the sequence is a little, um, foggy for me to remember, but I remember Mm -hmm. talking to Chris on the phone and being like, they want to take him to UCSF. They're, they think he's having a seizure. And I just, and I remember Chris just being like, fuck, we're going down the rabbit hole again. Here we go. (laughs) And, and I was kind of like, well, I'm sure he's fine. I think it's a mistake. I think this is a bad doctor. And they put him under those lights and it's making him freak out like it would any newborn. Right. Um, but then I remember, I don't know what happened, but I remember feeling like I'm going to be the calm one. I'm going to be like, no, we're going to go to you. So it's going to be fine. You got to get in the car, drive down there with the other kids. I'll meet you there. And then it was this whole discussion with the nurses about whether or not I could go. You know, I'm like six hours postpartum or something by this time. And they, I don't remember. I just remember they made me eat a ham sandwich. (laughs) This like really nasty (laughs) ham sandwich from the cafeteria. (laughs) And uh, they were kind of, for some reason, I think they were like, if you can eat this, then you can go. Like, oh my God. I don't, okay. I guess because they thought I, if I hadn't eaten, I might pass out or. Right. Cause you were maybe a liability at that point. Cause yeah. you were, especially in a, in a hospital birth is looked at as like a, you know, like you were an ailing woman who had just given yes. birth. You yeah. Were... They, they didn't know if I was going to be able to handle it. I yeah. think there was also a weight issue with the airplane. Anyway, I remember getting on the plane and. Then the nurses. I don't know how was much. Was it a plane or a helicopter? It was a plane. It was a medical plane. Like a, oh, like a mini. So they had him like on a stretcher with, you know, oxygen and huh. all okay. these machines monitoring him. And the flight nurse shows up and she, to me, was like, I'm sure she's a perfectly nice person. But at that point, I, she was like this villainous character because mm-hmm. she was like we're gonna give him more phenobarbital with a big smile like 
don't worry, we're going to give him more phenobarbital. And I'm like, no, like, I don't want it. And then I, and then they're like, you know, pushing me away. I'm just watching. They give him another shot. They wait like, I don't know, a couple minutes or whatever their protocol was. And then they're like, it's not working. Let's give him more. And my memory was just like, they just kept giving him more. And mm. I was like, you know, you can imagine. That's yeah. like not what you want to see. So, um, yeah, and then I just remember feeling so mad and getting on the airplane. And then the other flight nurses were just like talking about their night the night before. They seemed yeah. to be like not paying any attention. They were like talking about some bar they were at and it just seemed really unprofessional to me right because you're in there with your newborn and it was so hot and I was so uncomfortable and anyway we get there we get to the hospital and um I don't really remember what happened I just remember at, at some point he passed or he didn't he didn't pass out, but the phenobarbital made him unconscious, and um, we were there. I don't remember. There was just all these doctors around him all night doing different mm-hmm. things, and what I do remember is that in the morning, you know, however many hours later, somebody came up to me and was like, do you want a chair? And I, and I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, here I had just, like, given birth, and I stood up all night at his bedside no one even offered me a chair because I just was so out of it I'm just standing there waiting to see what's gonna happen and then I remember feeling like god that's crazy I stood up all night um and then in the morning you know Chris showed up with the other kids and uh he still Rowan wasn't awake yet and they were like he should have woken up by now this is kind of weird that he's still unconscious and you know, we, we can't really figure out what's going on until he wakes up and we'll see what happens. And uh, that went on for five days. He was unconscious. And to me, that was kind of the worst thing. I was so mad at myself that I took him to the hospital because they gave him this crazy drug that made him be asleep for his first five days of life. And I was just like, that was such a mistake. I mean, at this point, I'll never know. Maybe that's maybe that was better than what would have happened otherwise. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So he finally um, came to, and at that point, they were like, "This is weird. There's something going on because most people don't react like this to phenobarbital. It usually it would have worn worn off by now. Like there's something going on with his system that caused him to not be able to process it or whatever. And, were they saying he was, like, in a coma? I mean, to... No, they weren't saying he's in a coma, but they okay. were just, like, he should have woken up by now. Okay. Uh, so then he finally woke up, and um, they... He was on oxygen. Um, they finally let me hold him. I remember that the whole time, even when he was asleep still, that was my big thing. I'm like, can I hold him? Can I hold him? Like why don't you let me hold him? I think that would really be beneficial Mm -hmm. for him. He needs to be held. You know, it seems like a basic need. And I remember that being a huge battle. And I I don't know what what they thought was going to happen. But after, like, the first day, they finally started letting me hold him a little bit. But it was very limited. Like, they would let me hold him, I don't know, seemed like 10 minutes or something, Mm. and then put him back. And they really didn't want me to hold him. 
Um, and then um, he finally woke up and they let me start holding him more. That part, I don't really remember what was going on. I just remember that they were like trying to figure out, you know, they're like, is it his heart? And is it, I don't know, they went through all these things and ran so many tests. He had to have, you know, um, EEG and a CAT scan and like, you know, every possible test. So it, our days were like just filled with testing and they couldn't figure anything out. And so then I remember this team came walking in, you know, it's at UCSF, so it's a teaching hospital. And right. there's all these teams of people walking around. So I got to know, like from talking to the other moms in the NICU, um, you know, oh, that's that team and this is this team. And then I see this team coming and I know it's a genetics team because people had told me and I was just like, like that is not the team I want to see. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking like... Hopefully it's his heart and then you can have a surgery and they can fix it. Something uh-huh. fixable, right? Um, so the genetics team comes over and this guy was so... I thought he was so odd at first, though later he turned out to be like a great ally for me. But um, the head genetics guy was... He just didn't, didn't say much. He was very quiet. and I didn't know what to make of him. And they didn't really talk to me. They would just kind of look at him and talk amongst themselves and then leave. But they kept mm. coming back. And, you know, eventually <clears throat> I would have these meetings with the other doctors where they would come in and say, well, this is what we did. And we ruled out all this stuff. And, they're, you know, eventually they're like, okay, we think it's something genetic because there's nothing else left. And, and actually they thought it was PWS. That was their guess before they did any testing because of the, the, the tone. hypotonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. Um, then it became a matter of insurance because the genetic testing was super expensive. So we're like waiting there for weeks um, trying to get this test approved. And they couldn't get it approved. They wanted to do the whole exome sequencing, but it was so expensive and our insurance wouldn't pay for it. Um, so. But they paid for the stay in the hospital for weeks? Yeah. It's. So yeah. yeah, you know how it is with yeah. insurance. They just have their rules of what they will do and what they won't. So uh, they finally they approved something called a microarray, which is a I don't know if you know, but it's a smaller um, genetic test where they okay. can't look at things quite in detail, but they test for the more common things. And okay. um, they didn't really come up with much, but there was what they called um, an un. Anomaly? Unknown clinical difference or something like that. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And they were like, oh, it's probably nothing because everybody has different genetics, right? It just meant they didn't know and it was red flagged or something in the test. So um, then they're, you know, they're like, well, we don't know. We can't figure it out, basically. So they're trying to wean them off of oxygen so that they could send us home. And they are just saying, we'll just wait and see. We'll see how he develops. We'll see if he misses his milestones. So basically, they're like, go home and wait for him to miss his milestones, you know. And uh, I, uh, yeah, he could, they kept trying to take him off the oxygen. They, they kept saying, he should be able to get off the oxygen. We don't see why he couldn't. But every time they tried his um, blood oxygen would drop and they would have to mm-hmm. put him back on it. 
And then I had been mm. I had been trying to breastfeed him and it seemed like it was working for like the first few weeks and then I remember having this one day where I was so frustrated. I was just like it's not working. Like why isn't it working? I I couldn't understand. I had already breastfed two other babies like I couldn't quite understand why it wasn't working, mm. but I, I just was like so frustrated. I was like, it's so hard. I remember saying that to the nurse, this shouldn't be so hard. And then she was like, yeah, I think we need to do some tests. So then they sent him for a swallow study and um, he failed that. He, he was aspirating. So then they wouldn't let me breastfeed anymore and he couldn't take anything orally. So then they put in an NG tube in his mm-hmm. nose. So... And then it was this whole thing of like, they don't like to send people home with a tube in the nose. And um, they had decided they weren't going to be able to get them off the oxygen. So they were going to send us home on home oxygen. But now, um, you know, they wanted me to wait a while and redo the swallow study because they don't like to send you home with the NG tube. So we waited, and then he failed the swallow study again. Then they were like, we don't think he's ever going to be able to swallow. You need to just get the G-tube in, and today or tomorrow would be the time. And we, we're not going to let you go home until you do that. And, and the G-tube is when they go to the belly? Yeah, that's where they surgically implant it in the belly, and there's a little button that you can hook the, okay. the feeding tube up to. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, we're not doing that. <laughs> and, you know, like I was super close to it. And I think it was just too much. I was so overwhelmed. So I uh, I was like, we're not doing that. And so then there, we had to have all these meetings. They, you know, they kept sending in this grief counseling to me and the, you know, all the people to talk to me and to reason with me about why I should get the tube and... I don't know. Finally, they were just like, okay, well, we'll let you go home with the NG tube, but it's high risk because if it comes out, you have to put it back in yourself because we we lived very rurally. We couldn't just easily go to the hospital and have a nurse do it. Um, And there's a risk of puncturing his lung when you put the tube in. And so I don't know what I was thinking, but I was just like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to take that risk. And so they trained me on how to do it. Usually when they do it, when they place it in the hospital, they take an x-ray to make sure that it's in the right place. Oh, as they're doing? Oh, after they do it. Yeah, or maybe both. I'm not sure. Just to make sure that it's safe where it is. But when you're at home, you can't do that. So I later learned that a lot of parents do it. And I feel like I've seen a lot of pictures yeah. of... Um kids with PWS with NG tubes like yeah home. yeah so. I mean parents learn how to do it but I think it's a liability to send people right. home because there's a risk so they try to scare you off from doing it because they don't want you to take that risk and and I guess they just you know they were really like you know it's okay if he doesn't learn how to swallow he can still have a normal life and you need to just accept that you know and, and I was just like no I'm not doing that I'm gonna wait and see and so Anyway, they finally sent us home um, on oxygen, and... Were you relieved to go home, or were you also terrified? Uh, Both. You You know, I I remember this guy came in from um, the oxygen company to teach me how to use the tank, and he's like, 
don't worry, we'll get you a portable one. It's going to be here any minute. And then they wheel in this thing. You know, you've probably seen elderly people. They It's like a little dolly with this yeah. big tank. It looks like a missile on it. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. That's the portable oxygen? Like, how am I supposed to ever leave my house or do anything? Take my other kids to school? <laughs> like... You know, and just the, I felt really overwhelmed with the mechanics and how to operate the oxygen. And, and he also had to be on a, um, a meter. I forget what it's called now. Oximeter. Yes. Yeah. So he had to be on that all the time mm-hmm. to make sure his oxygen. And those things go happening. off all the time oh God, for it's like constantly batteries or moving. Yes. <laughs> I remember that. Flashing, yeah, and you know, probably from being in the hospital too, that you know, you're just staring at it the mm-hmm. whole time because you're. Frey like, had to sleep with one for a year or two, and yes, just, yeah, so you don't get any sleep. sleep. <laughs> Same thing. It was right by my bed. I'm just staring at it all night to make sure the numbers are okay. Yes. You know, so yeah, so dealing with all that was like overwhelming, but I was so done with the hospital. I was definitely glad to leave. Mm-hmm. I, I mean. Had your husband and your kids been down there with you, or they had to get back to the uh, Yeah, no, they had been there. Uh, my mom and my mother-in-law rented a house right by the hospital. Oh, nice. So that my, they could stay there with my other kids. And I didn't get to see Lila and Zayd very much during that time, because I was mm-hmm. pretty much camped out at the hospital. And that, that was a real hard thing, because I felt a lot of guilt about that and of, about their introduction to their new sibling. And um, I was actually staying at my um, husband's aunt and uncle. They luckily lived right near the hospital. So I had a place to stay, but it wasn't big enough for everybody. And I would just go there and sleep for like six hours and then come back. Um, and yeah, so Lila and Zaid were around, but then Lila had to start kindergarten. And I remember just feeling like, the worst mom mom. ever because I missed that I missed her first day of kindergarten Chris was coming back and forth because he had to run our business Um, he was trying to keep that going and come back down and be at the hospital as much as he could so yeah people were coming and going and after about the first month I was like get us out of here that we just started being like okay we don't need to know the diagnosis. We just right. want to go home. We need to go How can we go life. home? What is it going to take to send us home? Like, we were just vigilant about that. And it took another month. He was there for two months. And um, I had a friend come to visit me who's a midwife. Um, and she told me about the Nabanyal method. And she had just done the training to become a practitioner. And she was like, I think you need to go there. You need to go see a knot she could help Rowan and I didn't even know what it was, but their center is in San Rafael. So it's not too far from UCSF. It's in Marin. And, uh, we went straight from the hospital to the center and we had like five days of treatment there um, before we went home. Then we went home for like a couple weeks and then we came back down and did a whole nother week of treatment. We went back and forth for a while back from Humboldt to Marin. Yeah. So will you, um, I don't know if now feels like a good time or we can save it for later, but to explain what that is a little bit, because I don't know if everybody knows what it is. I don't know that I know what it is. The Anat-Banyal method? Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it's basically a type of movement therapy um, that um, uses movement to communicate with the brain and help 
you can you can use it really to learn anything but people use it a lot in um sort of a physical therapy type of sense to to increase movement and then it helps your brain become stronger and better and then your movement comes becomes better and those things kind of feed off of each other i mean our brain development and our movement are like the same thing right um so it's a you know it's a holistic approach that we're I should say we because I'm also a not, a not perennial practitioner now. Um, we use movement, yeah, to give the give the person and their brain information and experiences to help them learn how to move better. Okay. But it can also be used for cognitive functions and can be used mm-hmm. for learning anything really. Right. Yeah. So, so we did. It's... We found that and. Um, the doctors were like at UCSF. They were like, "There's nothing you can do." You know, because of course we wanted to help him somehow, and they were like, "You just have to wait and see if he, if he misses his milestones," and <laughs> we were like, "Well, we don't want to just wait around because he's pretty clear that something's going on, right. and he's likely to miss some milestones, <laughs> right? Like he wasn't rolling over, he couldn't pick up his head, um, he couldn't even breathe or swallow." So, um, yeah, so you're like, "The milestones like, are missed." We don't really <laughs> want to sit around and wait till he doesn't crawl <laughs> to start intervening um and so that's why enough and or neural movement it's called now um was great because they were like no let's get started you know like let's let's work with him now and they they were like used to dealing with kids like this and they were like oh yeah there's a lot we can do and there's a lot of hope and and they would do it they would do the treatment and they would be like look what he's doing now and they would point it out to me and i you know, it would be little tiny changes that at that point I couldn't really recognize. I would have, wouldn't have considered improvement. But then I started to see what they were talking about. And it was great because I'm like, okay, these people, they're on my team. They are doing yeah. something and it's working. <laughs> so we just focus on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that just like those moments of meeting people that you know can help you and that understand you and that believe you and that yes. can you know and you, the the sense of relief and just like oh my god finally yeah, totally yeah so um you know we were going back and forth there and then one day in the office in san rafael they were like oh have you met deb and i'm like who's deb and they there's this woman sitting in there deb and they introduced me and they're like she lives in eureka they said eureka she actually lives um in west haven but they were like, she's a speech and feeding pathologist and neuromovement practitioner. And I'm like, and she lives in Humboldt. This is so amazing, you know. And so um, then we started seeing her and we didn't come down to San Rafael as much because it was way more convenient. And she yeah. was amazing. And every time we would go, I got so much more hope. And I was I just only wanted to be with her, basically. Chris, my husband, was like, you only want to be with Deb. She's the only one you like anymore. You know? and, I, and it was true because it was the only time I felt okay. It was when I was in her office. Because I was like, she knows, she knows what to do. Nobody else had any idea what to do. None of the other doctors or anybody. So, And she was like, you know what? I think I could teach him how to swallow. Because this whole time they were like, when are you going to schedule the G-tube surgery? And I was just like, la, 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 la. I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Like, just denial, basically. And, uh, you know, we had to learn how to feed him through the tube and all all this stuff. But she did. 
she I don't know you know she, now I know that she was using neuromovement she's also a speech and feeding pathologist but um, mm-hmm. a lot of what she does that gets her such great results is the neuromovement work so he didn't have a gag reflex she's taught him to have a gag reflex I remember that was the first really big milestone where I was like oh my god like <laughs> he, he has, he's gagging now because you could stick your hand all the way down his throat he wouldn't react Mm. Uh, so, and then, you know, it was, she was doing other things and eventually she's like, I think he's ready for the swallow study again. I think he'll pass. And I was like totally traumatized by the swallow study and never wanted to do another one. And so I was super nervous that he was going to fail. I kind of didn't believe her. And so she sets it up here um, at St. Joe's and she has a relationship with the hospital. She works there. So she was able to work right next to the radiologist and talk him through it and it worked he passed and he was able to start swallowing and we got rid of the tube and now he eats completely normally (laughs) so that was like i was totally sold i was like i am i'm with her (laughs) right (laughs) um yeah so anyway and you know she same thing like he learned to sit up he learned to roll over he did all these things i mean it took him a long time he still right. struggles with holding his head up for a really long time but he can he's crawling around the house now so you know it's been amazing he's already surpassed a lot of things that the doctors didn't think he was going to be able to do ever so oh, that's so great i feel really grateful yeah, yeah. and do you do you attribute a lot of that to the neurodevelopment. I do, yeah, yeah. to the neural movement, yeah. The neural movement. Um, I do, yeah. I mean, we've tried physical therapy a little bit, but every time we went, it just didn't feel productive. Yeah. And I don't know for whatever reason. I know there's a lot of great physical therapists and occupational therapists out there, but is that really for a lot? Rowan, we didn't really find the right match, or I don't know why it didn't it didn't work for him. It would just, I just kind of felt like it was a waste of time. So we mm-hmm. stopped going. Um, and yeah, I, I just felt like Deb really taught him to do everything. Yeah. So, I mean, when you look at other Pura kids, um, most of them are doing conventional physical therapy and they do, there's, there's very various results, you know. Some of them are not able to roll over. Some of them... There's a few of them are walking, you know, so there's a, there's definitely a range. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say what Rowan would have been able to do, but I I definitely feel like every time we go, he makes improvement. He learns from it. So I think it's been really great for him. Do you ever go south to the center again? Or do you go anymore? We do. Um, well now that I am a practitioner, um, the thing with Deb is that she travels a lot, so... I would have like massive anxiety attacks when she was out of town mm. because I just didn't ever feel okay unless he was going to her sessions. So eventually she was like, you know what? You need to take the training <laughs> <laughs> because she's always overbooked. And so she was like, if you become a practitioner, you could join my practice. You could help me and you could work with Rowan and you would feel okay when I'm out of town. <laughs> So uh, that's what I did. And so now uh, I tend to take him with me sometimes when I go to um, trainings. I'll go as a support staff to help out and um, I'll bring him. And that way, you know, 
all the best practitioners from around the world will be there and he will get lessons from them. Mm-hmm. But other than that, we tend to just stick with Deb. Yeah. Because she's actually one of the best practitioners and she's right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was very sad to have to say goodbye to her. Yeah. <laughs> but I started to see her, I think, when she was eight, eight months old, mm-hmm. maybe 10 months old. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so he's up, he's walking, he's eating. He's, he's not walking. He's, he's not crawling. walking. He's crawling. He's okay. crawling. Um, he's, he can bear weight, but we haven't really encouraged it because he does it in this way that is um, really unorganized and mm-hmm. we don't want him to learn that that is right. how he should stand. So we're waiting until there's a few more pieces um, in place yeah. so that he can stand in a more functional way. I do remember that from my first uh, first meeting or two with Deb. Like, I didn't feel scolded. Like, she didn't scold me or anything, but I realized, you know, that all the times that I had set Freya up yep. and, like, propped her up, that yep. I was not doing her a service. Yes, we, we, all, <laughs> we all learn that when we go. <laughs> because, you know, I think we're just culturally um, trained to be like, oh, let's, let's well, move this them is along. Milestone. The next yeah. thing, let's get them to do it. Let's let's try and see if they can do the next thing. We're yeah. kind of rushing them along. And, yeah, because we feel yeah. the pressure, but we're not aware of all the nuances that... Yeah into right yeah that was that was such an eye-opener for me i just remember that first appointment and deb was like well you know she's not sitting right and if she's not sitting right her head's not going to be on her shoulders right and if her head's not on her shoulders right then she can't move her mouth properly yeah. and like just laid it all out i was like wow oh i had no idea yeah you know yeah. she was seeing um a pt who was you know, walking her around the room, holding right. her arms up, you know, because he yeah. couldn't... Yeah. It's really different. Mm-hmm. Physical therapy and neural movement um, have really different approaches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, yeah, I attribute Deb to a lot of Freya's success, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you want to talk about how it was when you came home from the hospital? Or just... Yeah, um, that was probably quite a shift. Yeah, um, I got pretty depressed. I was in a really dark place. I feel like I just kind of felt like my world was ending. And yeah, I I just was totally in despair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just would go through the motions. I mean, you do what you gotta do, right? Um, our house was so not set up for it because it was this tiny little, basically it was like a shack in the woods that we decided to remodel before we had kids. And Mm -hmm. it was like, we built an upstairs studio and the stairs were outside. And then eventually we had Lila and Zaid and we remodeled the downstairs and the stairs were still outside, which was fine, whatever. You know, we'd get a little wet when it was raining, but it wasn't like <laughs> the end of the world. Uh, but so now I have this kid um, who has is on oxygen and on the, I can't remember what it's called. It's oximeter. Oximeter, yeah. That's a good sign that I can't remember. <laughs> so glad to, to realize that. But um so, yeah, I have this huge oxygen machine that's really heavy. And it's like 50 pounds or something. And this other meter. So he's attached to all these tubes. And I, we're sleeping downstairs. And then I wake up in the morning and I've got these other two little kids. And I have to, like, 
shepherd them up the stairs while I'm carrying this oxygen machine and this oximeter and then go upstairs and plug it all in and you know with with my first two kids I would just put them on my back while I'm Mm -hmm. cooking breakfast or whatever you know but now I've got these two little kids um I was trying to homeschool at that point too and uh you know I can't even go to the bathroom without like wheeling this big huge oxygen machine in and then I needed like an extension cord for the other machine and so I'm like dragging these cords to go to the bathroom because I have to bring him with me because I'm afraid he's gonna stop breathing while I'm in the bathroom and you know the other kids are like I want breakfast Uh (laughs) you know and and I'm just like it was a total mess I couldn't really function basically yeah but I just did it somehow. I don't know. I just remember it was so, everything was so hard. It was so exhausting. And I just felt like, okay, how am I supposed to parent my other kids? I can't be a mom. I can't do anything. And yeah, I just felt really depressed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you're dealing with postpartum hormones, which are not easy to deal with. So you have that on top of the trauma and... Yeah, uh, well, I mean, even though I was already two months postpartum by the time I went home. Postpartum lasts for three years. Yeah. That's three years, I mean, you know. Right, yeah. No, I I definitely was still feeling all of those hormones. Um, And I was pumping. I pumped for a whole year. Because I wanted to at least get the breast So milk. tedious. Yeah. Oh, my God. So then I'm dragging that thing around. <laughs> I'm like, I couldn't go anywhere, basically. Right. I couldn't go anywhere without an oxygen machine, which basically means I can't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, those days I don't really remember. It was pretty just, I felt really, like, outlook was not good. And mm-hmm. eventually... Um, you know, we were going back to UCSF every three months also and seeing all these teams down there. And eventually this geneticist took on our case and he was like, you guys really need a diagnosis. <laughs> and he was so nice. He was like, they have to give you the full exome sequencing. There's got to be a way. And I think when we were in the hospital, they quoted us that it was going to cost $20,000. And they asked us if we wanted to pay it out of pocket and we were like not really because it seemed like all the options of potential diagnoses there weren't going to be cures for anyway mm-hmm. so we could pay twenty thousand dollars and find out what it is and not be able to do anything about it but it might mm-hmm. be kind of nice to know and have some other people that we could talk to who were dealing with the same thing and maybe we'll have some sort of treatment you know but anyway he eventually just kept calling this lab, this genetics lab, and being like, you have to let these people have this test. You should give it to them for free. <laughs> nice. and, uh, and they kept saying no. And then he found out that um, someone he had been in med school with worked there. So he called them up and asked them a personal favor. And they finally did the test for us. Wow. Yeah. And by that time, Pura syndrome had been um, recognized and... I remember he called us on the phone to give us the results and we both get on different phones, you know, because we want to hear the news. And he says, oh, I forgot to tell you. He tells us it's pure syndrome, but um, I had already gone on Facebook 
because remember how when we did the micro array, they had this certain spot on the gene that they had identified that had an unknown clinical uh-huh. significance. And so I put I typed that number into Facebook and I said, does anybody have an irregularity at whatever long number that was? And somebody wrote back to me and said, yeah, um, that's really similar to what my kid has. And it's called Pura syndrome. Uh, and so okay. then I had called the geneticist and said, like, oh, I think he has Pura syndrome. <laughs> and they were like, oh, that's highly unlikely. There's no way you could figure it out just by that number. You know, that's, you have to get the test and da da da, da and Interesting, but probably doesn't mean anything. And then it turns out that is actually what he had. So th- when he called, he was like, well, you're right. <laughs> and I initially thought that was good news because I had seen... Um, this other little girl on their website who was walking and I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, they're walking. Great. It's not that bad. Right. I had no idea about all the other potential complications. <laughs> I was just like walking, talking. Right. What else is there? Right. Yeah. Anyway. So yeah. So then <laughs> milestone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So then he, when he was about two and a half, he started um, having seizures and, um, mm-hmm. We had already been doing CBD for a year because we were hoping that that would be preventative for him, but it didn't turn out to um, be preventative. So Well, maybe it was for that year. Yeah. Well, that's what they said. The doctors at UCSF said you might as well keep taking it or giving it because he it could be reducing the severity of the seizures. It could have delayed the onset. We don't know. And there's mm-hmm. no harm, so you may as well uh, keep giving it to them to him. But they eventually also were able to find a pharmaceutical that has, for now, about a year and a half, um, stopped the seizures. So that's amazing. That feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Did you listen to Chantel's episode? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It took him, like, 18 years to find one. So intense. I feel really lucky. Yeah, that's great. I mean, not to say that it's going to last forever, but... Well, but... When you have a kid with seizures, <laughs> you realize how good it is not to have seizures, you know? Like, it's so hard to understand how stressful that is and how hard on their little system it is. Mm. And they're having a seizure. It's just, I mean... How you know, often would he have seizures? Um, He would have them a lot, you know, like five to ten times a day. Wow, so you're just kind of, like, sitting watch, just waiting. I feel like I could interrupt them actually which they tell me that is not possible but how would you (laughs) Uh, well I would um, you know there's so many I believe you by the way there's so many things so many different kinds of seizures Mm -hmm. Um, his were called epileptic spasms and they to look at um, if you didn't know they just kind of look like the arms and the legs are rhythmically jerking and his mouth would get this certain shape so when he made that shape with his mouth Mm -hmm. i could tell that one was coming on so i would pick him up i would take him outside i would feed him which they say you're never supposed to do it seemed like that always worked there was something about um like getting his attention with Uh with the food that would like wake his system up wow yeah, I don't know. But then I was I was still always on edge that another one was going to start. And, you know, it's it's damaging for their brains. So. Right. That was a really weird period of time when he was having seizures because I think I just was super checked out because I just couldn't really deal with right. feeling 
the reality of the situation. So I just was kind of like, it's okay. We, I mean, we would be like going to dinner parties and, you know, going on vacation and all this stuff. And was he off the oxygen at this he point? He was off the oxygen, yeah. Eventually, when he was about two and a half, um, they tested him and they were like, you know, basically as apnea and um, it's central apnea. It's not obstructive, so it's a brain issue and it's definitely related to his condition. And the, I remember the doctor, she, she said, like, she's like, you've done a good job keeping him alive this long. I think you should take him off the oxygen. <laughs> and I was like, what's that mean? What? Wow. Well, yeah. It was weird, um, huh. but I was like, are you sure? You know, I don't want to put him at risk. I would rather keep him on the oxygen and keep him safe. And she was like, you know, I don't think it's ever been really helping. It's like they just didn't know what else to do. So they had him on the oxygen. So we were like, okay. And I remember at that point, then I was kind of scared to take him off. So I was like, are you sure? Maybe we should just keep him right. on. <laughs> like, you know, um, yeah. I couldn't, it was, I, I, oh yeah, I cried so much when she told me that because I just c- couldn't believe that it could be true that he could come off the oxygen and it was such a relief. Yeah. It was Did scary you... and it was a relief at the same time. So yeah, he, he had been off of that for a while, which was so nice because, you know, it really affected our family's ability to do anything. Oh yeah. You're not just going down to the neighbor's barbecue no, we're not going anywhere farmer's market until he got when he was having seizures i did but when that was after he was off the oxygen when it was on the oxygen we can do anything we can go camping you know that was kind of like our our lifestyle was like we were like outdoor people we lived in the woods you know we were like gardening and camping and hiking and boating like that was our thing and now we couldn't do any of that so that was really kind of like, what is our life now? Right. You know, I really felt like all of a sudden I'm, I'm a nurse for the rest of my life. And my kids, they just have to kind of hang around in the background while I, I'm a nurse to their brother. You know, a lot of people go through that with the siblings. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, but when he came off the oxygen, it was like, okay, we can do this now. <laughs> we can, you know, we can go places. We can go on family trips. We can go camping. We can go rafting. We can do all the stuff we used to do. And that was huge. And at that point, you know, he was still really little. So it was easy to carry him around, mm-hmm. even though he wasn't mobile. You know, we would just put him in the sleeping bag next to the other kids. And it was so great because we could have our life back oh. you know? do you by chance remember like your first camping trip after <sighs> it's okay if you know, I don't think I do <laughs> yeah you know honestly I think when he when, after he was about a year old and he was still on oxygen and you know that stupid monitor and he, he wasn't swallowing yet and I was still pumping and pouring it in a tube down his nose and all that kind of, I think I just got to this point where I was like so depressed that um, I remember my husband being like you gotta you gotta figure out a way to not be this depressed because you can't go on like this and I remember thinking that too yeah like it's not fair to the other kids I need to get more functional and uh, I 
just said, like, do you think it's okay if I just don't think about it? <laughs> he was like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> just, like, whatever you need to do to enjoy your life more. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think I kind of blocked a lot of that out. I don't remember. There's a lot of patchy spots yeah. that I don't remember. That is understandable. <laughs> and I have that, too. And, I mean, that's been one thing, too, in this podcast is, you know, in the beginning, I was just kind of telling my own story and then going back to some of these events or these periods, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. That's right. We did that. Yeah. When the, yeah, the oximeter thing was one. I mean, all of her sleepers used to have a little hole cut out of the toe so the cord could come exactly. out. <laughs> yes, I know. I just found a pack the other day of these little stickers that you put on their temples to hold on the cannula for the oh, oxygen. Uh-huh. And I was like, what are these? Oh, oh. I know what these are. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think things will spur my memory and I'll remember little details or big details, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of it that I don't really have like at the, at my fingertips because I don't know. I just was like onward. Let's not think about it. Yeah. So is that kind of a turning point when, uh, like, because you said you kind of went to this really dark place? Was it? Yeah, and I remember I was talking, I found a, um, a counselor who's in Berkeley who specializes in talking to parents with kids with special needs. And I spoke to her, I don't know, five times probably on the phone. And I had some real specific questions for her, <laughs> like, and she has a, a grown daughter who has a chromosomal disorder. Uh, so she really knows what it's like, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, I think I just needed to hear like that life goes on, that there's a way mm-hmm. to still like function in the world like this. Cause it took mm-hmm. me a while to see that and to know that I could be happy again and feel like a normal person and feel like I had any autonomy for myself. And I had a lot of guilt about even being concerned about my own personal autonomy. I felt like I shouldn't even be worried about that, you know. And and then I had a lot of questions about how it affects the siblings. And, you know, her answers to me were, like, really reassuring because she had a similar situation. It was her youngest who had the chromosomal disorder, and mm-hmm. then she had two older kids. And she actually felt like from all the families that she's talked to and from her own experience that those siblings usually turn out to be stronger people, not, mm. not more, um, they don't, they don't have like this terrible baggage from it. Typically it's usually the other way around. They're more empathetic and they appreciate things more. And she felt like it makes them better people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she also, I remember some advice that she gave me was that, you know, of all the people that she works with, and she works with a lot, she's really well known in the Bay Area. Um, the people, the kids who tend to do the best and, be, and um, you know, go beyond their supposed limits the most are the ones who not do the most therapy, but they're the ones who the family finds how to have fun with them. Mm. They're the ones that, like, the parents find out how to enjoy them right and they go out not the ones who drag life. them over to like every therapy possible and like do the most work 
So well, that's good to know. Yeah. So Makes I was, <laughs> I was kind of like, cause I was feeling all this weird guilt about like, Oh, I'm not going to PT. Right. I'm not yeah. I don't that. have a long list. And the doctors will think I'm totally nuts, you know? And it's almost like they think you're abusing the child or something because you're not doing the conventional stuff, even though they don't even know if it works or whatever. But right. Anyway, so she helped me a lot. And yeah, I think that was the turning point for me. It was, being able to go places and travel again. And then the hugest thing for me personally, aside from my whole family's health, but my personal mental health was when I decided to do the Anapaniel training, uh, which involved um, every two months going away for 11 days. Uh, and at that time, the training was in Las Vegas. And so I would go for 11 days and then in between, I would do online studies, and I met the most amazing people from all around the world. Now I have this community of people. There were 100 people in my class, and it's so international. And I'd say probably like 50% of those people have kids with special needs, mm-hmm. and the other people are usually like doctors or some kind of therapist, PT or OT or something. Um, I just met so many people who were so inspiring and who a lot of them had kids with special needs and they were still traveling the world Mm -hmm. and doing amazing things and living a super vibrant life and having the connection with all of those people, I think really helped me. That was the biggest thing. And it was so empowering to me to feel like, oh, I can still go out in the world and have a career. I don't have to just stay home all the time and and be the nurse, you know. Mm-hmm. Plus, Rowan was getting a lot better, and so that made things a lot easier. And I, he, you know, he started to be able to express himself more and smile. And I felt like, okay, he's happy, mm-hmm. so now I can be happy. Because when you can't tell if your kid's happy, that's really a bummer. You know, it's hard. It's really hard at first when I didn't know if he felt okay or if he felt sad or if he recognized me. Or or anything Mm. you know so now that he's much more expressive I'm like okay he's happy (laughs) it's not that bad right (laughs) no it's not I mean that's what we all want is to be happy I remember the um I remember one of the local doctors who was a pediatrician at the time and I don't know if she had a diagnosis yet maybe she did but I remember he said something like because we're talking about IQ and he said, you know, you're going to have 145 IQ and live under a bridge and be miserable. Right. You know, the, isn't the important thing to be happy? Yeah. I was like, oh. Totally My husband true. and I were just like, thank you. Totally true. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think about him and that comment. Well, I wanted to talk about siblings a little bit. How do you approach the sibling thing? Is it an issue or... I mean, what are, what are the challenges? Uh, yeah, that? I mean, it definitely is an issue. I think I've maintained this position with them that, like, we just don't know, you know, because a lot of times they'll ask me, well, do you think, you know, by the time he's 15, he'll be talking? And, you know, they want to know. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm like, I just don't know. We don't know. And then every, I try to really keep it open. And sometimes I say like, but you know what? Even if he doesn't, it's okay. It'll still be okay. Yeah. 
you know, they really want to help him. And I think we're kind of at a transition right now because he's started kindergarten and they still treat him like he's a baby. They feel like he's their little baby. And, you know, my daughter likes to carry him around. She's like, look at the baby. Isn't he so cute? And I'm like, he's five. He's not really a baby. But he, he acts like a baby in a lot of ways. And um, so that's kind of a funny line to walk. I have started saying to her, like, you know, he's not really a baby anymore. Right. And she's like, but, but when is he going to become a kid? When he starts talking and walking? And I'm like, well, that may not happen. You know, he's like, he is, he is a kid now. So that part's definitely tricky and like, you know, we just got a new stroller that's like an adaptive stroller that's clearly like looks like it's for a kid with special needs and I think that was a little hard for my daughter. She was like, I don't like that stroller. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, it looks like a wheelchair. And uh, I was like, well, maybe it is. Does it matter? You know? Mm. You could tell she was kind of like, she didn't say anything, but maybe it just kind of it's hard for her you know it's hard for all of us I, I think we're starting to move out of that phase of like just treating him like he's a baby and then he can kind of pass in the world as right. as like just a baby even though obviously people can see that he's too big to be a baby but now it's getting to the point where um, we're getting out of that phase and so it's a little bit harder I think on all of us just recognizing like okay we gotta start making some changes you know like maybe getting a wheelchair maybe thinking about a house that is more accessible you know just more permanent things that are like still not happening permanent's Mm -hmm. not the right word but um just becoming more obvious and harder like it's getting a lot harder to carry him now because he's really heavy and i can't just run into the store with him on my hip you know, I'm starting right. to be like, maybe I should leave him at home because he doesn't fit very well in the grocery, the shopping cart anymore. You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, the sibling thing is huge. And I don't know. I'm just kind of winging it. But I, I really try to convey to them that um, the future is open. It's not closed. It's not set. It's never like over. It's never like, OK, well, now he's this age and he's not walking. So he's never going to walk. I, I really feel like he still could, you know, and we don't know, but maybe yeah. he's not going to, and it's still okay. Yeah, like, how much do you expect the rest of the world to adapt? Mm-hmm. You know, it's really a tricky question. Yeah. And, and it's the same within your family. Luckily for us, our favorite thing is um, going on wilderness rafting trips, so that's something you don't need to know how to walk to do. So he's, you know, um, we missed the first couple years when he was on oxygen but other than that we go every year on a family trip to utah for two weeks and we camp along the river you know and uh we just it's fine i mean maybe he'll get heavier and it'll be harder to transfer him but he can sit in the raft and he can yeah. still come so that's a positive thing that you know some as long as we have something that our family can all do together i think it's okay to not do everything together right, right? Yeah, there are alternatives. I think that's all we can hope for is like that they have things they like to do. Um, just like everybody. Yeah. I agree. 
don't know if I already asked you this, but is there like a, are you in with a group of families like on Facebook? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am though. Um, I couldn't really handle it. I had to go off of it. It's been a couple of years since I've been on there now. And I think it really helped me on (laughs) not being on there. And I, I feel terrible kind of because I'm like, I'm not a team player, Uh but I'm like self-preservation, you know? Yeah. I don't think you should feel (laughs) terrible about it. And recently I've, started thinking about going back on there I'm like maybe I'll just every once in a while check in and mm-hmm. see maybe I can handle it now I don't know maybe I don't need to it's it's kind of a weird one for me I feel like I shouldn't be in denial I should face the truth like I shouldn't not look on that Facebook group because that's I don't know like not living in reality or something but if it makes me feel better, then it makes our family function better, and I have a better outlook, and I really feel like Rowan feels that positivity from me, and he does better. I can't, I just can't go around being a wreck, you know, so I have to figure out. Right. Yeah, you got to do what's best for you and yeah. your family, you know? I, yeah, so. I really do feel like everyone is their own person, and, and you know, there's, like, so much research now about, like, epigenetics and... You know, everyone has their different makeup. It's not, like, totally set in stone. Um, so I think knowing that the future is open, really, I really do believe that. And I and I want to set that tone for other people who are around Rowan. So um, I think I, I'm getting better at it, and I will be able to re-enter some of those groups eventually you know I mean it's supposed to be like a support group right you're supposed to be supporting each other so right if you're not feeling or well yeah I I feel like I wasn't being supportive to the Mm. other people but I think they understand yeah (laughs) (laughs) more so than anybody else yeah knowing what you know now how would you comfort yourself in the beginning what would you say to yourself? Um, I think I would just say that, you know, it takes time, but life is going to be fun again and it's going to be okay and you'll find a path. You know, I think that was the thing that was hardest for me at the beginning is I really kind of felt like it's over and done. Like, I can't do anything anymore and my family is totally ruined but not that I didn't like love my new baby but I just didn't see how we were going to function in that situation and mm-hmm. um, we're figuring it out and I think that uh, that's what I would have wanted to know at mm-hmm. that point is that it's going to be okay I'll still be able to be myself and do the things that I want to do in the world and my my rest of my family will be able to be independent and we'll also still be able to have good times together as a family and find a way to have fun and um, feel authentically ourselves I think I sort of felt like my identity was like ripped away from me or something like I couldn't be the person I wanted to be Hmm. and that wasn't really true but it did take a while to um, feel like I was myself again Yeah. yeah if somebody had told you that Back then, do you think you would have believed him? Uh, I don't know. It depends who it was, probably. Yeah. I think <laughs> I think that um, meeting all the people at the Not Ben Yell training is essentially that's essentially what happened to me. Is I saw all these people 
who had been through really similar things and even harder things and they bounced back and they were finding a way to still enjoy their kids and their life and still be interesting and fun and active and not just like these people who depressed and never could go out of the house again you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I thought it was going to be now so um yeah I think I think meeting a lot of people helped me with that and I don't know if just one person telling me it would have really helped right it would help some but I, I felt so lucky that I had that situation because it was so healing to be around all those people and just like party. We were in Las Vegas. <laughs> like we were, like I mean I, I hated Las Vegas actually before that. I was like, this is not my thing. I'm totally not gonna wanna go there. But um, you know, you could find some things, you could find fun anywhere. And uh that yeah, that really helped me just meeting that whole community. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well did we um miss anything that you wanted to say or um talk about i guess just one thing is i i think about other parents here locally who don't have the opportunity to do something like the anapanyal training who are potentially isolated and i think this podcast is huge in building community um but i would like to try to reach out to other people and and create more connection and community locally because i don't know um it's I think people, if they have their diagnosis and it's a more common one, maybe they have a group that they meet with or something. But I, I sort of feel like if I wasn't doing an Abanyal method and meeting all these families and working with these kids, that I would still not really be knowing that many people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this podcast helped me be aware of a lot more people. So it's awesome. But okay. I, I'd like to have more opportunities for people to get together in person. Yeah. Me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thanks for doing it.